Welcome everyone to the Cardano Effect podcast. The purpose of this podcast is to take high-level developer information and projects that are occurring within the Cardano space and break them down into bite-sized, consumable pieces of information for everyday use. I'm your host, Philippe, and let's get this podcast started. The hosts of the Cardano Effect are Rick and myself. We want to get right into the mix of things very quickly today. We have a very special guest who's joining us today, and we have a lot of Reddit questions. We hope we can provide you some entertaining and educational content during these times of crisis. We hope that everyone is staying safe. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening today. Please remember to like, comment, and subscribe, and share this podcast on as many different platforms as possible. Our podcast is growing, and it's thanks to you. So without further ado, I want to remind everyone that none of what we say on this podcast is financial advice. You are your best financial advisor. And if you don't think you are, you need to find someone who's qualified to do so. So without further ado, Rick, how are you doing this morning? What's going on? What's happening? Hey, doing great, Philippe. Thanks. We have Sam Leathers returning to the podcast. He is the service reliability engineer at IOHK and also known as the master Jedi of DevOps to the pool operators. I would like to give a shout out to the Cardano Foundation for sponsoring this podcast. Thank you, Cardano Foundation, very much for sponsoring us. And I would also like to remind any viewers new to this podcast that we are available on all audio streaming platforms so you can listen through audio streams. All right. So we're going to go over to Sam. Sam, welcome back. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing well. Thanks, Philippe and Rick, for having me today. All right. Now, we have a massive number of Reddit questions, so there's a real thirst for knowledge. I took them, and I compiled the Reddit questions into a PowerPoint here that I'm going to bring up on the screen, screen share. We're going to try to get a good flow, rapid and continuous, and get all these questions answered because there are so many of them. And Sam, thank you for going through the gauntlet here at the Cardano Effect. <laughs> so here we go. All right, so rolling into the Reddit questions, I went ahead and posted my questions here from Darth Prometheus. That's me, Rick. And um, the first question, is there a solution to the adversarial forking? So the adversarial forking should not be as big of an issue in the Haskell side of things because it's following the spec that was written out. There are uh, things. I'm not the expert in that regards and whatnot. You probably want to talk to someone like Duncan Coots on the podcast that can explain it much better. But to my knowledge, the adversarial forking should not be nearly as big of a problem on the mainnet. Okay. Thank you, Sam. Uh, Philippe, you want to get the next one and we'll roll through? Yes. Is there a best way to win slot battles? And the follow-up question is, what impact do you think slot battles will have on the mainnet operators competing to win? So the best way to win a slot battle when you have... So first of all, a slot battle is basically where you have two pools that both are minting a block in the same slot. This is allowed by the protocol. It should not be happening frequently. But when it does happen, the one that's going to win is probably the one with the lowest latency connection. So having a good, fast connection to the rest of the network is key to basically winning those slot battles. Okay. Okay. Any ideas on the impact on mainnet? Are the operators going to be competing for the best bandwidth? They're going to be paying more money to get higher speed, less latency, or how's that going to work out, you think? Higher speed probably is not going to matter nearly as much as latency. So having a low latency connection like under 50 milliseconds and whatnot to the rest of the nodes and whatnot is pretty much what's going to win it. The, the lower your latency is, the faster your block's going to propagate to other nodes. And then uh, the longest chain of when you have a fork, the longest chain is typically the one that wins, um, assuming that the chain follows all the rules on all the nodes. If you have a fork where you have 
disagreements in the rules because people are running different software and whatnot, then it changes a little bit more because then you have an invalid block being applied in one and not in another and whatnot. But that's a slightly different issue. Okay, thanks. And how often would these slot battles occur on mainnet? Will there be more or less or the same? Uh, because there's going to be a slight difference in how the epics are running on mainnet vice on testnet. Yeah, I don't know. You would have to look at the researchers and um, the engineers that are writing the software that could estimate that a little bit better. Okay. Sam, next question. I had also the same question. When pledge? So pledging is coming with mainnet. So there will definitely be pledging with mainnet and the Haskell testnets leading up to mainnet. Okay. What will pledge be and how much is expected for average returns and how much pledge is expected for maximum returns? So my understanding of how it works is the pledge is a uh, amount that the stake pool operator commits is going to be in his wallet delegated to that pool from this particular address. And if those funds are moved, then the pledge basically is broken and that pool basically is no longer able to, I'm, I'm not sure if it's no longer able to make blocks or whether it just will drop off the radar for people to delegate to it and whatnot. But the pledge is basically what you want to tell your users that you're going to be putting forward from it. So it's like, I'm running a pool, I have 10 million ADA, I can say, well, I am going to guarantee that I'm always delegating 8 million ADA. And if I stop delegating 8 million ADA, then I fail my pledge. So Sam, follow-up question. So the pledge or the stake pool operator that pledges to their pool, say they have X amount and they take 10% off in a year, would that be breaking the pledge or does it mean that they have to? They would have to drain it? Like say they're above the minimum pledge requirements to be competitive, but they remove some ADA, but they're still above that minimum. Would, would just taking any amount of ADA break the pledge or would does it have to fall under a certain threshold? Like I mentioned, the pledge is amount that the operator himself sets as a contract with his users. So he could set the pledge at five ADA and delegate 20 million, or he could set the pledge at 19 million and de delegate 20 million. Um, both of those are basically valid. I don't think there's a minimum pledge. You would, again, have to look at the actual implementation to identify that. But to my knowledge, there's no minimum pledge. It's just a matter of that the pool operator is committing to having that much delegated to it. And if it changes it, then the pledge is broken. Okay. Wow. okay. Is there someone we should bring on a future podcast, like either Lars or Duncan, to dig into that one? Absolutely. I think Duncan would be a perfect person to dig into that one further. Okay. All right, cool. Okay, right. Philippe? Yeah, so uh, also, when will pool operators have the ability to change their percentage fees? From day one. Um, okay. So the way things work, if you've looked at the spec at all, essentially, when you register your pool, um, you put down a deposit, and that deposit degrades over time. And then when you deregister your pool, you get the deposit left that hasn't degraded from that to encourage people to deregister their pools if they're not running them anymore. But then you can modify your pool and basically you just pay the fee to change your pool parameters, basically. Does that answer the question pretty well? 
Yes. Yes. Yeah, the day yes. one. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So from day one. So I guess yeah. a follow up yeah, question one. to that would be: do you, do you know what the fee will be to change the percent? Like, if I want to issue a certificate to change a percent, do you know what the fee is? I do not yet. Okay. I don't think it's okay. been defined yet. Okay. Okay. All right. Are there training materials already being made for the Haskell version of Cardano Node? So there are training materials that are coming out in the next week or so from the Adrestia team that basically will give you the tools you need to develop applications, um, like if you want to write your own explorer, if you want to run as an exchange, things of that nature, if you want to run something like pooltool.io. That kind of training material will be coming out, and that applies to Byron um, in the next couple of weeks. And then there'll be more stuff coming out for Shelly probably in about a month. I'm estimating these dates, nothing I'm guaranteeing on here. Uh, the devs would basically have to confirm, but that's basically the general that I've heard. So about a week will have Byron materials for doing that stuff, about a month will have Shelly. And then there'll be other documentation written by um, technical uh, writers, basically, that explain how to do things like how do you set up your own pool? How do you create the keys you need? How do you rotate your KES when you need to rotate it? By rotate, I mean um, actual regenerate the KES key and whatnot after like 180 days of it auto-rotating itself. All right. Excellent. Last one. What do you feel is your greatest achievement with the Shelly ITN? I think the greatest achievement we have with the ITN is basically running these proof-of-stake protocols and showing that they actually work. Yes, we've had some ups and downs with network connectivity, with other issues with the code base, but in general, I mean, and you can see if you look at your API rewards and whatnot and see what rewards you've earned during the ITN, you can see people are actually getting rewards and making blocks. And it really does prove that this is feasible and that the technology works. Okay. Awesome. That I, I agree with that, Sam. I mean, as your greatest achievement, proved Ouroboros works. Yeah, absolutely. Security equal to Bitcoin. Absolutely. Now, now you can't have people on podcasts and whatnot, not that you guys ever did, but like other podcasts out there basically saying, well, there's no proof they never made this work and whatnot. No, we actually did make it work now. Yeah, it's proven. It's proven with with the security equivalent of Bitcoin. You know, Sam, we did offer critics to come on this podcast to, d to discuss this. People who are genuine mathematical and scientific critics, not just, you know, jokers on the sideline. And uh, no one took us up on the offer. So- that, that's very telling. And then now it's proven. So good job. Well done. Next one, Philippe. Yes. Thank you, Rick, for those questions on Reddit, by the way. So we're moving to Aid Attainment. And Aid Attainment says, do we already know the hardware requirements to run a Cardano node on the Shelly mainnet? So right now we're still looking at targeting the same about four gigabytes of RAM. The better your CPU is, especially for initial sync, the faster you're going to sync because syncing is rather CPU intensive. It basically has to replay the entire ledger to get into sync. Once the thing's in sync, CPU is not quite as big of a constraint. And like I mentioned earlier, the biggest thing that you want to focus on to have a productive node is minimizing your latency to the rest of the network. So you probably don't want to run this tethered on your 4G phone and whatnot in the boondocks somewhere or over a satellite connection. 
Although the new SpaceX satellite stuff, it sounds like that's pretty low latency and maybe that would work for running a node in somewhere like middle of Africa that doesn't have any other options. Yeah. Sam, can I clarify low latency? I'll give you an example. If I'm running my internet, I was running it at 300 megabits per second, 300 meg, and then I Mm -hmm. upped it to one gig. But when I do the speed test, what was four milliseconds to the nearest speed test server, not the next hop, uh, or it was five milliseconds and it dropped to four milliseconds. That's what you mean by latency, right? The number of milliseconds per hop. Yeah, and probably, I mean, I would estimate probably anything under 30 milliseconds is probably fairly decent for what you're looking for. Okay. Um, but yeah, if you're getting four milliseconds, you're golden. Yeah. And that's like two hops before it gets to that server. <laughs> and yeah. so that's just an example, right? We're not talking 300 megabits or one gigabit. We're talking the hop to the server. Yep. The hop to the backbone. of the And internet. this will improve very much over time as we start to get like the peer-to-peer stuff rolled out and other things with Shelly going forward. The first implementation of Shelly is not going to have a full peer-to-peer implementation like there is on the ITN. But that is being worked on in parallel right now, and that will be coming shortly after the mainnet launch. Um, We'll definitely have a peer-to-peer system, and that's going to be very latency-based. There's some really good papers and stuff written by Neil from IOHK on Delta Q, um, and all those peer-to-peer things are pretty much based on this idea of Delta Q. So if you're interested in more information on how the peer-to-peer latency stuff is all going to work, definitely look to that for a resource. Okay, thank you for that, Sam. Sam, that kind of leads to a follow-up question. This one isn't in the Reddit thread, and that is currently... If you want to win slot battles, the best way to do it, in my observation and based on many other people's observations, is to launch a server on the cloud in the middle of Germany on a very specific software platform. Those are showing the highest percent <laughs> wins. Okay. So will will this lead to concentration of nodes or is there a workaround or solution? I will re- I refuse to do it. I'm trying everything I can, but you know there's only seven people who physically live in Germany according to Pool Tool, but there mm-hmm. are 32 nodes operated in Germany. So people who are not in Germany are operating their nodes out of Germany uh, due to various factors, not because of that, because it's cheaper, basically. They have a very cheap, very efficient system, but it's also causing a concentration of nodes in Germany because it's cheap and efficient. So the cause and effect, cause and effect, cause and effect leads to those nodes tend to be the highest performance nodes because they're in very close proximity based on number of hops. Do you think this could be a problem or is there a solution to it? I think there, so I I don't want to be too critical of the ITN because the ITN has done some great things in proving how things work. But I think this is partially a problem with the ITN network stack because we have noticed very much the same, and we do run some nodes in Germany, but we have very much noticed that our pools that we run in Germany definitely get more blocks, even with the same amount of delegation to them than the ones we have in the US or in East Asia and whatnot. So that is definitely a concern. And let's see how things go with the new network stack and whatnot. One thing that people can do to help us test how, because the network is exactly the same in the Byron rewrite as it's going to be in Shelley. So if you want to see how things are performing and test these things in different places, 
sync a node in, and by node, I mean run Daedalus Flight. That's probably the easiest way for your average user to sync a node. However, we do have Nix scripts that also can be ran. But sync one where you want to run it and see how well your uh, node stays in sync. If it's staying in sync, that probably means you're going to be pretty well at getting your blocks advertised as well. So that would be something that would be very beneficial to us. If people all install Daedalus Flight, test it out, try it out. I'm not saying you have to run transactions through it if you're not comfortable doing that with something that we haven't given our seal of approval for being mainnet ready on and whatnot. But just syncing the node is going to be very helpful to us. Um, and getting some spikes of a whole bunch of people syncing would also be helpful to us because it gives us more data when we have these spikes of people coming online. Excellent. All right, we okay. will push for that. Everybody okay. download Daedalus Flight and get that sucker running. Be careful though, that's mainnet. Daedalus Flight is mainnet, all right? Yes, so. it absolutely is mainnet. So if you don't feel comfortable running transactions through it, don't. I'm personally running Daedalus Flight. I put all my stuff into an Icarus-style wallet, which is called YoRoy, inside Daedalus Flight. So basically, I just generated a 15-word mnemonic and then moved all my funds into it. So I feel fairly comfortable with it. But if you don't, by all means, wait until we have the mainnet release. I did it, but I used small amounts of ADA. So that's another way of getting to it. All right. Thank you, Sam. Philippe, you ready to move on? All right. Next question from Adatainment. What are the pros and cons of using unique ticker names? The answer may lead to into my next question. If we move away from the central metadata repository, what possibilities would there be to make the ticker unique? Hmm. This is much less of a technical question, I think, and more of a social question. Personally, I like having the ticker name represent what I'm doing and having something short that basically makes sense to me is what I would prioritize on. Some people prioritize on it having cool words and whatnot that they can call their pool and other things. I don't really know what the pros and cons would be to having unique ticker names. Um, I'm assuming you're referring to having a pool that has the same ticker as another pool for unique. But yeah, I'm not I'm not 100% sure on this one. Yeah, I could take that one. That, I think it's brand association. Like If you like New Balance or Nike shoes, you tend to lean New Balance Nike. My daughter's an avid runner. She leans toward ASIC because she likes the performance of the ASIC shoe. So it's kind of like brand association probably. What do you think? Sound good? Next one? Yes, yeah. yes. Okay, so let's go to Glitch. Glitch, good to see you there on Reddit. We have the best Redditors in Cardano. The Cardano has the best Redditors. We got the best Redditors. All right, Glitch04, will the transition for stake pool operators involve re-registering stake pools and tickers in a first-come, first-served manner, or will the transition be a simple script-based transaction verified by the chain and existing pool data allowing operators to maintain their established tickers? And then another question, what do you think the KVI would be? So let's stick to the tickers. How, how will the transition from the Jormungander ITN to the Haskell mainnet, how will we transition the tickers? Redo the whole thing? I don't think that's been defined yet. We may have to redo the whole thing, but I don't know how that's been defined yet. We will definitely, and I'm sure the CF will also support me in this, we would definitely not want people to be able to steal other people's ticker names in that transition, which is, I think, what people are getting at here for the tickers. Okay. I agree. I think I think that's what it is. And then the last part there, what, what do you think the K value will be for the Haskell mainnet? So there's lots of different Ks. So you have to define which K. I'm assuming in this case, they're talking about the number of stake pools we're targeting. I believe so. Yes. Right now it's K equals 100. 
And that has not been defined yet, but I would assume it's going to be somewhere over 100 and under 1,000. Okay. All right. According to Twitter, it's uh, about 500. <laughs> so uh, that based on a Twitter poll. All right, Philippe, go ahead and get the next one. All right. Will low pledge have an effect on slot selection or will it kick in at 50% of saturation as shown in the given examples and documentation? So low pledge will primarily affect other people from being incentivized to delegate to that pool. So if you set a low pledge on your pool, other people and our algorithms with the wallet and Daedalus and whatnot would definitely reflect this. It doesn't mean all wallets would order them in that fashion, but it's basically the general idea that you're going to drop down to the bottom of the pool list and less people are going to delegate to you. Whereas if you have a higher pledge and you're not saturated, you're going to be much nearer, the, much nearer to the top. Okay. We do anticipate pledge will increase return on investment, right? Like a higher pledge, if, I, if two pools being equal, both pools have, let's say, 50 million ADA, one pool has a 5 million pledge, and the other pool has a 100,000 pledge. The pool with the 5 million pledge will have higher ROS over time, true or false? I don't think that's true because if there's they still have the same amount delegated to them, then they're still going to be making the same amount of blocks. Ah, okay. Okay. But at some point, there's a minimum for the pledge where block production is going to be affected. Is that true? Like, is there, a, is there too low of a pledge? I mean, someone, you're saying that, I mean, if someone pledges one ADA in their pool and another person pledges 50 million ADA in their pool, you're saying that even if they have the same amount of delegation in their pools, they would be winning the same amount of blocks or would the higher pledge win more blocks? I'm pretty sure they'd be running, winning the same amount. That would have to be confirmed again by someone like Duncan. But I'm, I'm pretty sure it would be the same as long as they have the same amount delegated to them. So you could pledge one ADA and de delegate 49 million and someone else could pledge 49 million and you'd have pretty much the same chance of creating a block. That's interesting. That's my understanding of it. But uh, someone like Duncan would have to confirm that. Rick, we have to, we have to talk to Duncan about that because that means that it the pledge doesn't mean as much as it it it, it doesn't mean that much. Yeah, that tells me it doesn't mean anything. Based on that information, I wouldn't even do a pledge. I'd be like, nah, I'm gonna save that for the Lambo. Yeah, one one percent pools could do like you know they could pledge one yeah. one ADA over thirty pools. And one percent pool will will dominate the main net. Yeah, almost so guaranteed. Almost pledge guaranteed. doesn't. Yeah. But again, if you if you only pledge one ADA in there, then basically in Daedalus and Yoroi, your pool's not going to show up. No one's going to delegate to you. Not show up or just drop down to the bottom? Well, it might drop down all the way to the bottom. It depends how many pools there are. I mean, there's going to be a max of how many it's going to show, I would assume. It's not going to. If there's a million pools and only K at 500, it's probably not going to show all one million pools in the list. At the uh -huh. same time, though, at the same time, the pools that have been running since the beginning of the ITN have some sort of brand recognition. And most of the people that are going to be delegating in the main net are just carryovers from the test net. So, like, most people know which pool that they're, that they're delegating to. I, mean, I think that that point would be valid if the ITN wasn't so long or people didn't already get familiarized with so many different pools. But at this point, you know, people are going to be looking for those pools. Yeah. 
Let's um, bring yeah. that up with Duncan. Let's yeah. get Duncan. Yeah, bring take. it up with Duncan. Yeah. And maybe have Lars come on too, because this will take and Sam is super high tech DevOps. And Sam, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah. Uh, we'll yeah. go to the next one. Yeah. Anything that yeah. Sam can't answer, it won't be Johnny on the hot seat. We'll make sure we get uh Lars and yeah. Duncan to follow up as well. Yeah. So, I, didn't, I, I didn't mean to go after you like that, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> was, That's okay. Yeah. I'm just trying to <laughs> process my thoughts. So yeah. So. yeah. We love you, man. And we know we can ask critical questions and not be jerks about it, right? We, we're exactly. all good with that. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. Um, critical questions without being a jerk. All right. Awesome. Next one is uh, any talks of an additional deterrent besides pledge being added to the code to keep mainnet from becoming a race to the bottom on pool fees like the ITN to keep the network growing and profitable for pool owners? So let's just encapsulate that as one question. Are there any other deterrents besides pledge to try to prevent the race to the bottom, which has already occurred? The race to the bottom has already been won. Oh, yeah. It occurred and it happened. So uh, any compensation for that or any way to prevent that on mainnet? That's uh, going to be something you're going to have to talk to Duncan to. Um, okay. I believe the way the K value works is uh, slightly more optimized in the Haskell version and whatnot. So, I mean... If you're approaching the saturation limit, that's also going to reduce your desirability, even if you don't exceed it. So, I mean, a race to the bottom, you're just going to fill up your thing fuller, and and then it's a game of trying to not get too oversaturated, um, so you still get your rewards. Excellent. Thank you. And that kind of covers the second half of that paragraph question. So we'll come back to that with Lars and Duncan on a future podcast. Thank you, Glitch, for that. Last one on for, for Glitch, Philippe. Yes. What is the most interesting thing you or your team has learned from the ITN that you were not expecting, if anything? Did you come up with a solution in Haskell? So any problems that you saw in the ITN that you're going to be implementing in the Haskell version? Uh, again, that's going to be more of a developer question. Okay. Fair enough. So the next one, AAS Reddit asks, I'm trying out NixOS, your field of expertise, Sam. Thanks to Cardano for the discovery, and I love it. Will IOHK support NixOS with more detailed documentation and official packages and repositories in regards to the Cardano software ecosystem, like Haskell Node, Daedalus, and so on? So we are taking advantage of a NixOS feature called overlays, which basically lets you overlay your own packages into it. And we also provide NixOS modules in each of our repos at nix slash NixOS. Um, so you can do a fetch tarball on Cardano node at the rev that you want and point it at slash nix slash NixOS. And you have the same modules that we use uh, for deploying our nodes also, our deployment tool that we use for deploying our nodes, which will eventually be used for deploying our stake pools, um, is open source. And you can see that at Cardano-Ops. We have lots of cool features in there, like uh, you can run your own Explorer, you can uh, run the new Postgres D uh, DBSync in extended mode, so it dumps extra data to it. There's all sorts of pretty much everything our NixOS modules support is supported in our Cardano Ops repo. And you can use Cardano Ops to deploy to AWS, PacketNet, or DigitalOcean, Volter, pretty much anything that NixOps supports. Uh, you could alter our Cardano Ops stuff to basically uh, support as well fairly easily. So yes, NixOS is definitely a first-class citizen in our, um, what's the word I'm looking for? In, in, in the ecosystem of Cardano. Yeah, in, yeah. The, in the ecosystem of Cardano, it's definitely a first-class citizen. Even our Windows installers and our Mac installers even though they don't use Nix when you run them, 
And they're all built with Nix. So if you look at the Daedalus repo in the default.nix, we actually have derivations in there that basically build Haskell code that does some magic to the binaries. So they work without Nix uh, for Mac OS, and then it uses the Haskell Nix cross-compilation stuff for Windows. So Daedalus and Cardano Wallet, we build all that stuff with Nix. So if you're interested in Nix, start digging around in the repos. You can just Nix build pretty much every project we have. Okay. Sam, I got to give you a shout out. Nix, I didn't know anything about it. I learned it on the self-node testnet, and it was amazing. That's where we were able to set up a node in about five minutes. Yeah. So good job <laughs> on that. Good job. And I know you're the guy who is promoting and pushing Nix, and now I know why. You were right. You were absolutely you've been you. proven correct. So well done, sir. <laughs> All right. Next one. All right. Next one is from Reddit user NOH4. When and if can we expect to see an analysis of ITN Genesis and other settings? Whether the settings achieve their goals and will have their values migrated to the Haskell testnet, eventual mainnet, or failed and will need a tweak or rethink. For example, the settings pertaining to saturation, optimal number of pools that were set to 100 for ITN, uh, or the slot duration period of two seconds and how it impacted block propagation throughout the Poldercast topology and so on. I guess the essence of this question is they want to see the analysis of the ITN and whether whether or not you're using some of those values and implementing them into Haskell. Yes, so an analysis has been done. Again, that's pretty much above my pay grade. Um, I think Kevin Hammond might be a good person to bring on to the podcast to discuss uh, some of that stuff, as well as maybe um, Dinal Attell. So they might be good people to reach out for for more details on that. They are basically, the, the devs are taking that analysis to heart and they are coming up with improvements in the code as we're doing things. Um, when we get the uh, first uh, Haskell test out of Shelly, we'll definitely be doing some tweaking. We'll play around. We're going to probably start with similar numbers and see how things perform. Other than K, I think we definitely need to increase K because there's just too much interest in stake pools to stay at 100. But things like slot duration, again, I kind of think that the Haskell network is going to be able to handle a two-second slot duration better than how things were propagating through Poldercast. We'll see it when it happens, but at least in the OBFT era on the Haskell testnet, we have seen really great network functionality. My team actually wrote a tool called uh, PerfOps, and it basically lets you performance test any NixOS module. We initially tested it against ITN and just ran a whole bunch of Jormungandr nodes, almost 10,000 connecting to the network and pretty much completely crashed our QA network. Uh, we ran the same thing against the Haskell code and the Haskell code only had three relays at the time and nothing crashed, just sync performance was um, abysmal. And we used that to basically tweak how many relays we wanted to run. We started with 100 when we launched Daedalus Flight and then we backed that off to 20 currently. And it's running and performing syncs perfectly. I mean, my Daedalus flight here has basically been running since we ran it, and it's never gotten out of sync. So um, I think a lot of the things have to do with the rush that the um, Rust guys were on for getting the network out. A lot of the stability things kind of got set on the wayside, whereas the Haskell team from the get-go has basically been looking at network stability 
first and foremost as they develop it. And we've even had to write, as uh, Charles alluded to last night, we've had to rewrite pretty much an entire Windows networking stack to be able to get the Haskell stuff to perform as well on Windows as it needs to. And that's still in progress. We're still making tweaks. Um, the latest Daedalus Flight doesn't have a lot of those improvements yet, but the next one uh, should have a lot of them. So yeah, that's coming along. And yeah, I think a lot of this is basically just the, the emphasis on getting something out as soon as possible. The stability aspect kind of got set on the wayside. Right. But Flight FC2 corrected that, at least in my observation. It improved it. It definitely didn't correct it yet. Okay. But FC3 should have a lot more improvements, especially on the Windows side. Oh, good good point. When FC3? <laughs> Next week? This is going to be a weekly thing? <laughs> we're hoping next week. That's okay. kind of where we're kind of shooting for weekly right now. And basically, we, we want people to participate in our development process and testing these things out. So we're, we're trying to get these out as soon as possible. But we wanted to have at least a good modicum of stability before we got the first one out, which is why it took so long to get the first one out. But yeah, we're, we're definitely trying to iterate on this stuff much more frequently. Excellent. Okay. So wrap up question on this one. Just so you guys know, I abbreviated no H4's Reddit username because it was complicated. So I just abbreviated it. So the second half of this question, I think what it alludes to, do we expect to see one day epics on mainnet or are we going to have the five day epics on mainnet like it currently is or should be? I don't think if that's been decided yet. Okay. All right. We'll get more on that. All right, NOH4 again. Is there any chance of having some regular Telegram presence by IOHK Haskell developers during Haskell testnet early mainnet teething stages? From the Rust side and Jormungander, it sure has been nice having Nicolas, Renor, and sometimes Vincent around to bounce some questions and ideas off. I will definitely be around on Telegram when we do these early testnet mainnets pretty much Anytime I'm not watching my kids and whatnot, I'll be watching it on my phone like I was the first time we were uh, going through this with Jormungander. Um, I would definitely suggest we have some devs uh, looking at it, but that's not my decision to make. Um, I can't really say if there is or isn't going to be a dev presence. Um, I've also been pushing very hard that our um, support team should be watching that, at least during their working hours and whatnot. So there's a little bit more real time supporting that can happen rather than having to uh, file a Zendesk ticket and whatnot. But again, these things are way above my pay grade. I can't really say one way or the other, but I would be all in favor of having a good team of people that can help people out uh, while we're getting through these teething stages. Okay. Sounds good. Thank you. All right. Last one from NoH4. Or actually, there's a couple more from NoH4. What are your thoughts on the idea of adding a stake pool configuration option or parameter? to let stake pool operators specify a threshold above which any further delegation attempts to the pool would not be allowed as a way of allowing people to take care of early delegators. So in this example, this question does come up a lot. Will there be a way to allow pool operators to limit stakes so they don't go far above saturation, for example? So this is getting into the research phase that we've already completed for Ouroboros. Um, we could potentially do another round of research to take some of these lessons learned that we get out of the mainnet launch if we're still having issues and doing it, but there's no way we're going to be able to get peer-reviewed research to change the protocol 
in the short time to be able to launch mainnet. So if we were to do that, I mean, that would be a decent setback. So at this point, there's no chance of changing Ouroboros the way it is currently, but that might be something we look forward in future research. I mean, we're, we're a blockchain development and research company. If we have new things to research, even if it's researching how the old things worked a better way and whatnot, that's something I would definitely think that IOHK would be very supportive in to looking at in the future. But it's definitely not happening for mainnet. I agree. And this could be good for post-Voltaire voting, too. Like people can vote whether they want that feature or not, because mm-hmm. I'm of the I'm of the opposite mindset. I would say I don't want that feature. I want to let people have their free will and do what they want to do. And if they do something less than desirable, they will eventually learn their lesson and they will stop doing things that are less than desirable. Eventually, right. <laughs> and the other thing you can do to and. it's actually more beneficial to have your pool saturated and whatnot in some ways, because then you can, you can retire that pool, spin up two more pools and basically advertise that the same way, get people to all switch to your new two pools and whatnot. Now you can get more rewards out of the system because you have even more stake coming at you. So, I mean, it's not necessarily a bad thing to identify that your pool is getting saturated and address the situation. If you if you spin up another pool and get people to move from it or retire the pool and spin up two new pools, I mean, that's it's how things change over time. Excellent. All right. So that finished up that question from NoH4. Here's the next one. All right. Have any simulated network attacks, example, DDoS, clock skew, poison blocks, transaction spam, been carried out since December 14, 2019 by IOHK DevOps? and QA teams on the ITN network? And if so, what were the outcomes of such tests? None have been carried out on the ITN network. We we do have rigorous penetration testing audit type stuff going on on the Haskell stack currently. And that's definitely something we definitely are definitely going to be pursuing and doing more of and whatnot. We have a um, CISO... Um, Charles Morgan at the company, or actually I think he's director of cybersecurity now, that does some of this stuff as well internally. But yeah, so it's we definitely care about the security and we definitely want to solve any problems with the security. But we have not carried out any penetration testing of any sort on ITN. Sam, that kind of uh, segues to another question. Will the Haskell version of the testnet be incentivized or not? My understanding is it will not, but again, that's above my pay grade. Okay. okay. Do you know if transaction load testing, because you, you remember you and I did this specifically with a few other folks like Merrick. Oh, yeah, said, I remember. <laughs> we need to do transaction load testing and just pummeled the network with hundreds of thousands of transactions and it stood up. It There was some, there was maybe some casualties, but it withstood the punishment. We got tools already on the Haskell side for doing that, so you don't have to write your own tools. Excellent. And uh, just curious, who's going to pay for that? Because right now, I cannot afford to do those those tests. Those tests would cost me about $5,000 to do, to do it the way I did it. Yeah, but again, it's not going to be incentivized, so you're not losing any money in the first renditions of that. Um, okay. And we also have, um, similar to the... Rust uh, self-node and whatnot. We also have uh, similar benchmarking tests on Haskell where we can just generate a custom genesis, do a huge load test like that. Our benchmarking team on the Haskell side 
um, has already looked into a lot of these things. Granted, it's all been Byron so far, but all that tooling carries directly over into Shelly. So as soon as we have the Shelly stuff, which a lot of it's already written, the consensus stuff, the ledger stuff, there's some crypto stuff that still needs to be done, and then it basically needs integrated into the node. So it's it's not like we're starting over. We have the Byron reboot, but that Byron reboot already has a lot of that Shelly stuff already done in it. So it's going to be coming fast. It's going to be fast, fast, fast. There's going to be new things coming every day. So yeah, there's a new CLI I just heard about last night um, that they've uh, mocked out and they're going to start wiring up that does things like letting you uh, set up your pool, do pool operation tasks, like rotate your Kez keys, all sorts of cool stuff. So that's going to be coming pretty soon and a pull request to be merged uh, at some point in the near future. Excellent. Thank you. I'll go to the next one. Still from no H4. Okay, exactly how does one rollover a Jormungandr log file without restarting the node? No timestamp or file size-based rollover has been implemented in the Rust code. And with the info level logging, the log files get rather large after a few days of uptime. Okay, so these are infrastructure related. And I think the first one here is, for example, if I power cycle a node, there is no persistence through a reboot. I don't use the log file thing built into Jormungandr at all. We actually made a hard requirement to the Jormungandr team way back in July that we absolutely under no circumstances could this be ignored, had to have systemd level logging um, in a structured logging format. And that's basically what we use on all our systems. So we have systemd collecting everything. It's in a structured format instead of a text format. So it's not just log lines. It actually has attributes tied to each log message. And if you look at those attributes in Jormungandr, it tells you like exactly what line and what function uh, that thing came from, which is really great for debugging when you're trying to figure out where the heck did this log message come from. So my suggestion to any serious pool operators is to use something like systemd to handle your system service and let journal d handle your logging. And then you can basically just configure the system and say, hey, I want to keep four megabytes of logs or hey, I want to keep the last two weeks of logs in your journal d config and you're done. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to care about what the software does and what it provides as a feature. Okay, cool. And the second, thank you, Sam. The second half of that question was also what recommendations do you have to those of us who are trying out Haskell, Testnet, Cardano, Node, but are getting empty logs? Cheers. <laughs> yes. Um, so it, there's some growing pains right now with the logs. And you'll notice not all your log messages are empty. So the Haskell side has basically looked at developing a logging framework. Um, that's structured from the get-go. So all those logs are buried in structure somewhere in there, and it's a matter of configuring the config file to display what you want it to display. Um, and we've been adding what I like to call human-readable messages because no one wants to watch JSON parse by on your screen at 100 miles an hour. No so one wants to adding... look at JSON anyway. <laughs> it's horrible. I, I like JSON. I <laughs> use JQ daily. I, I, I basically enforce any config file has to be parsable by JSON when I set my requirements for the nodes. So that's why... Even though we have YAML configuration files, we pretty much, with the Nix, we just write JSON and 
Yeah, I use JQ oh, for God. parsing JSON all I the time. I love YAML, and I'm not even a software engineer. Looking at JSON to me is like trying to watch Chevy Chase string Christmas lights. So YAML, <laughs> YAML you know is supported for the configuration files. It's not supported for the Genesis file, but you really shouldn't be writing your own Genesis file anyways. So we do have YAML support for it. The thing I hate about YAML, and you remember this from when we were launching ITN, how many people copy-pasted the YAML and got tabs in the wrong space, and it completely broke the node config. And yeah. with JSON, you don't have that problem. Okay, um, fair so, enough. And I, I was one of my first development languages was C too, so I kind of like the braces and <laughs> whatnot that go with JSON. Um, and when when I say JSON, when I write the config files, I'm writing them in Nix anyways and just converting them to JSON. So that's why our JSON files are a little more ugly. They're not human read. Uh, they're not pretty print parsed or anything. It's basically because if I'm looking at the config, I'm just looking at the Nix that generates the JSON. Well, lucky you. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, that's good. I just wanted to play, like, take a little poke at that JSON. I just learned about it. Thanks to you, Sam. I learned what JSON looks like. And I can never unsee it. It's burned into my brain. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to, we'll roll to the next one. Thank you, NoH4 Reddit user. And thank you, Sam. Uh, that was our last one. And no, no H4 is the abbreviation, but great Reddit questions. I'm going to stop the screen share. I think that was our last one here. Yeah, it was. Okay. That was fantastic, wow. Sam. Sam, you made it through the gauntlet. You made it through the gauntlet. Wow, that was incredible. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think, Philippe? Uh, yeah, I think we can wrap up this episode. I had one more question for Sam. Maybe make it a little bit more lighthearted. So, okay. you know, whatever, uh, you know, your team, your team of people, I mean, you guys are parsed into different teams at IOHK. And I noticed at the beginning, you, you, you download a dataless flight, you're moving your ADA into dataless flight. So can you give us a little insight as to what the employees themselves, like, do you guys have your own little pools that you guys talk about in, in, in private chat rooms that, you know, you are setting up and, you know, employees are using the same kind of pools? Or is it something like you're involved with community pools as well? I mean, you can answer for yourself or maybe what you hear or in the ether. Yeah, I'm I'm involved in community pools, so I, I delegate my stake to community pools and whatnot because I want to help support the community and grow the community. I don't have a whole lot of stake, so it doesn't really help them that much. But it's it's just the the thought that counts, right? <laughs> it is, and a whole lot of stake is relative. Everybody knows that. And uh, but thank you for yeah. delegating to community pools. I appreciate that. And I think the pool operators really appreciate, for the most part, that IOHK has been delegating. Two, you've been rotating through different pools. If, mm -hmm. if other pool operators didn't know that, right now there's over 880 different pools out there, and about 860 of them are community pools. Cardano Foundation and IOHK have been rotating through. So mm -hmm. many thanks for that. Yeah. This was a great podcast. You answered the most questions ever, Sam. You just set a world record. Yes, Congratulations. Yes. <laughs> you did it, man. <laughs> Thank Woo. you. And your composure's been awesome. Yes, yes. <laughs> We're ready to wrap it up. That was yeah, fantastic. Let's, let's wrap it up. So thank you, everyone. Thank you to everyone. I know these are troubling times. We hope that this was a very educational and informative podcast. I know this podcast was probably directed towards stake pool operators, but there are a few questions that delegators would be find interesting in this podcast. And we're going to 
reach out to Duncan and various other IOHK employees to try to get a little bit more details that will help the actual delegators rather than stake pool operators. This is what we do on the podcast. We have an amalgamation of various different episodes targeted to various different communities within the Cardano ecosystem. So if you don't find a certain episode interesting, you can log in and watch another episode with another individual that you find every find interesting. But I guarantee you, we have something on our channel that you'll find interesting. So thank you again for listening and watching. I want everyone to stay safe. Sam, I'm going to leave you with the last words. Do you have any last words for the listeners and viewers of the Cardano Effect? And thank you so much for coming on. Well, these are interesting times for sure. Um, I hope everyone's doing well in their homes and whatnot right now. And this is going to be a very, very fast-paced next couple months and whatnot. So definitely keep an eye on the things that IOHK is doing and the things the Cardano Foundation announces and just be ready because it's going to be a really fun ride. And I look forward to riding it all with you guys. So thank you. All right. That sounds good. Until the next episode of the Cardano Effect podcast. Bye, everyone. Bye.